That slide up again. I want to go back to the fall festival, and I want to reiterate something that I shared in the 8:30 service. You know, we look at this, and yes, it's fun. Yes, it's amazing. Yes, there's never been a 45-foot Ferris wheel overlooking the valley uh, ever. And yes, it's great that all the sale benefits are going to go towards kids in the foster care system. But I want to impress something upon you, and I hope that you would help us make this shift. This campus is not just for you and me. This campus is not just for our church. This campus is for our city. This is for our neighbors. This is for our friends, our family, our coworkers. It's not just for us. God has entrusted this amazing home for us. And if we can't be generous with what God has given us, we should just hang up our shoes and hats and call it quits. But you don't want to do that, do you? No. No, no, no. So here's my invitation to you. To begin shifting your focus on this place, seeing this as an amazing amazing gift that God has given us, that this would be an opportunity for you to invite your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends. We've sent out an invitation to all of our neighbors right here in this community to come to this event. We're talking with all the local schools saying, come to this event. It's going to be an amazing, fun, enjoyable time. And on top of that, we're giving all the money away towards kids in the foster care system. So this isn't just something that we get to do fun and, oh, we get to feel good because the money we raise goes to the kids out there, but that we would say this is an opportunity to get outside our comfort zones and say, hey, would you come with me onto my church campus and be 45 foot up in the air? I don't know if we're going to get stuck, but it's going to be awesome. So you've got an opportunity to invite your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors. And let's see, this is an opportunity among many others that we're going to do in this season to invite people to come to campus. Now, in addition to that, you'll notice in your bulletins, uh, we've been sharing this every single week. Why don't you open that up? There's a postcard inside your bulletin. And what we've done is we've commissioned an artist, Scott Erickson. He goes by Scott the Painter on social media. And he has designed for us uh, an image that connects with each one of these sermons in our Exodus sermon series. And because we've created a postcard, it's our intent, it's our hope, it's our challenge to you that you would use this as an opportunity to have a Christ-centered conversation with somebody who's not yet part of Bellard Church. So you might choose to mail this to somebody. It fits the, the format that the Postal Service won't send it back to you. So you can send it, and some of you have shared, you've been sending this to friends and family and, and pen pals. Some of you I've even met have used this as an opportunity to invite your friends and your colleagues to come to church. There was a number of people who were here last week for the first time because somebody invited them using this postcard. So this is for you. We're putting this in your hands, not just for you to dialogue with others who are part of the church, which you can do after the service, but you would use this as an opportunity to have conversations with those not yet part of Bel Air Church. All right, we're part of a series right now uh, in Exodus. How many of you were here last week or caught the sermon uh, last week, somebody even this morning said that they got up early and listened to Greg Bennett's sermon this morning on the way up to service. But can we give thanks for Greg Bennett? It was so great, so amazing. Now, if you missed that, you can go to our website, you can download our app uh, online, and you can go to iTunes, you can get caught up in those sermons. But it's a reminder that there's this moment in the Exodus story where God has, uh, has commissioned Moses to be part of setting free his people. And I, I took away so much from last week that there's always skepticism wherever we go. That some people are skeptical of God. 
that people were skeptical of Moses and his leadership. And last but not least, Moses was skeptical of his own leadership, his own calling. And that's going to lead us into this moment today that in the midst of all that skepticism, God is bigger, God is greater, God is more faithful than we ever could imagine. So why don't we open up our Bibles right now. Uh, We're going to go to the Ten Plagues. And I've got my work cut out for me today. Oy, oy, oy. Exodus 6, 28. Very difficult section of Scripture, and yet it's my prayer that we would walk away with tremendous hope and courage. Exodus 6, 28. Through Exodus 7, 7, if you have a pew Bible, that's a, the red Bible that is in the pews, or if you're in the front row and the little cubby behind your leg, it's on page 47. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you. We'll replace it as quickly as you can take it. We believe God's Word is true to what it says about itself, that it's alive and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that all of Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, for correction, for reproof. And so we believe that it has power. And we'd rather be open and speaking truth in your life than it closed in the pews all week. So please take that with you. Let me read Exodus 6, 28 through 7, 7. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I am speaking to you. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, since I'm a poor speaker, why would Pharaoh... Listen to me. But the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, I will lay my hand upon Egypt and bring my people, the Israelites, company by company, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. So why this? Why ten plagues? Why this mighty act of judgment, as this says? Well, go back, take a look, and Greg pointed this out last week, that the catalyst for all of this is a question that Pharaoh asks. In fact, it's in chapter 5, verse 2, but Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? Pharaoh's saying, Who's God? And you've got to understand, in Egyptian culture, Pharaoh was considered the ultimate power. He was believed to be a god in the flesh. He was believed to be the son, the offspring of the god of the sun, Ra. And so he has the most power in all the land. He says, well, who's your god? That I should listen and obey him and let his people go. And as Greg pointed out last week, you you know, you can't really fault him because at this moment, he's never met God. But that question that, that Pharaoh asked, God answers. And as he answers it, Pharaoh encounters God. 
And what's so fascinating is that as he encounters God, you'll see a pattern that we'll take a look at in a moment. I can cover so much. Ten plagues, but three things that I want you to pick up. Three answers that God gives. So if you're taking notes, if you can just remember this, three things that God answers to the question, who's God and why should I listen to him? God says, I am a judge unlike any other. Number two, I am a creator unlike any other. And lastly, I am a savior unlike any other. And here's what's fascinating. We, you know, we work on these sermon series months in advance. I know what we're going to be preaching on next May. So it's not like we wake up on a Sunday morning saying, you know, what should we preach on today? We, we, we plan this far in advance. And during the summer, we had set this up. And the first point of today is God saying, I am a judge unlike any other. Well, what amazing timing that the whole nation is talking about a judge. And what's so fascinating is that what is true today was true back then. That human nature doesn't change. And actually, we have a unique resource that is truth that's actually going to, hopefully, if you allow it to, change how you see the world. It's going to change how you live. It's going to change how you love. It's going to change how you watch the news this week. Because Scripture calls us, ready for this, to be different than the rest of the world. And the sad thing is most Christians, we forget that and we look like the rest of the world. And as the nation is talking about a judge, you know what's happening? And this has been true for all of human history. We as humans are playing the role of judge. And what's so fascinating is that what has always been said in private conversations, what's been believed in hearts, now is fueled in a 24-7 news cycle with social media. Everybody's got a platform. So the brokenness of the human heart that always wants to be right, that always wants to be judged during executioner, now has a platform and our country is ripping apart. There's this civil war going on because people are trying to be the judge that only God can be. Now, let me be very quick to say that it's not wrong for us to have opinions. We've got to have opinions. I'm not saying that, but the moment that you begin to judge in the way that only God can judge, where you say, well, I know that person's heart. I know their motivation. And I've seen this. I've seen on social media where people say on both sides, they just look guilty. Oh, really? And so one of the things that we're going to encounter here in this text is that you might, you might resonate with Moses, you might resonate with the nation of Israel, but my prayer, if I'm doing a good job as a communicator today, is that, that you would resonate a little bit with Pharaoh. Because every single one of us, we've got a little bit of Moses in us, a little bit of Aaron in us, a little bit of the Israelites in us, a little bit of the Egyptians in us, and a little bit of Pharaoh in us. You see, Pharaoh was the judge of the land. Who's God? God says, I am a judge unlike any other. And when I look out on our nation, I see people in our, in our broader community, parents of 
some of the kids that my son goes to school with locally, some of the stuff that they're saying on social media, wishing violence against Kavanaugh's daughters, wishing violence against Ford, saying, I know exactly who's right and who's wrong. It's heartbreaking, is it not? And I'm not saying that God doesn't call us to be a voice for the voiceless. I'm not saying that God doesn't call us to speak out against injustice. I'm not saying that God doesn't call us to to speak out and to push back on the oppressive power structures in this world. But the moment that we try to put ourselves in God's seat as judge, and if we think that we can know someone's heart and look beyond someone's words and actions and say, I know because they're associated with so-and-so that they're either guilty or they're not guilty. In that moment, we're just like Pharaoh. And it's ruining us. And yet God says, I'm not going to abandon you. There's hope here. In fact, there's this amazing, amazing thing. Let me give you a couple things that unfold before we just unpack these three Three main answers. Did you know that there's a pattern that unfolds across these uh, ten plagues? One of the patterns is this. God has Moses go to Pharaoh as he is coming down to the Nile River in the morning to give Pharaoh a warning. Let my people go. And if you don't, this is what's going to happen. He doesn't care. The judgment comes. And he then freaks out. He says, Moses, stop this thing. You've got to have God stop it. And God stops it. And immediately, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Now, what's fascinating is that there's two different ways in which Scripture describes this. In some instances, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And in other instances, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. There's this truth that we live in a world where there's free will, and yet God is actually able to orchestrate things in the midst of, not separate from, in the midst of our free will. I hope that at the end of the sermon you feel like uh, that wasn't enough, and it forces you, it, it propels you to open up God's Word and to begin to read. You're going to begin to see that, that all of a sudden, Pharaoh will say stuff like, I've sinned against God, I'm sorry. And they stop, and then he says, no, back to the slave labor. So there's this pattern where Moses shows up at the Nile, and then he shows up before the second plague in Pharaoh's court, and then there's no warning before the third plague. And then the fourth plague, Moses shows up at the edge of the Nile, the fifth plague in Pharaoh's courts, and the sixth plague, no warning. The seventh plague, he shows up at the edge of the Nile. You know where this is going? The eighth plague in his courts. The ninth, there's no warning. And there's this pattern that we see that God gives seven different warnings to Pharaoh. I'm God. You're not. Let my people go. And Pharaoh is so filled with pride. He's got to be right. Do you have a little bit of Pharaoh in you? God in the midst of this says, I alone 
am a judge unlike any other. I know matters of the heart, God says. I can see motivation. You've got to understand that yes, you can look at actions, you can look at words, you can have opinions, you can vote, you can do things, you can respond to things, but when it gets to matters of the heart, God alone knows. Let me move on. We'll come back to that moment, but let me move on. God also says in response to, well, actually, before I move on, let me, let me say this very, very quickly. Uh, another one of the patterns is that every single one of the plagues, God goes toe-to-toe with one of the Egyptian gods. So in the whole pantheon of uh, Egyptian gods and their belief system, of which Pharaoh was believed to be the greatest god, did you know that every single one of the place goes after a different god? Let me read some of them. So when water is turned into blood, it's confronting the god of the Nile, Hopi. Uh, when frogs are unleashed across the land, it confronts the frog goddess, Heket. When gnats are unleashed across the land, it's confronting the god of the earth, which is Geb. When flies overtake everything, it is God confronting the god of creation, which is Kepri. When the livestock are diseased, God is confronting the cattle god Hathor. When boils break out among all the Egyptians, God is confronting the goddess of medicine, which is Isis. When hail rains down from the sky, God is confronting the goddess of the sky, Nut. When locusts begin to devour everything, God is confronting the god of storms and disorder, Seth. And when darkness falls over the land for three days straight, God is confronting the god of the sun, Ra. And the final, which we'll pick up next with the final plague, which is the death of every firstborn son in Egypt, God is confronting the ultimate power, the ultimate God of Egypt, Pharaoh himself. And so God, demonstrating that he's a judge unlike any other, he is saying, I'm going to go toe-to-toe with the things that you have put in your mind to be power sources. I'm going to confront the things, the idols that you think give you security, that give you joy, that give you satisfaction, the things that you think give you life, the things that, think you, that you have all these things from these things. I'm going to confront these things. I love how St. Augustine said this about 1,700 years ago. He says, idolatry is simply this. It's disordered love. Because so many of us, we take good things that God has given us, good things like health and family and and work and our reputation, those are good things. But if we take those good things and we make it an ultimate thing, put it in the role that only God can fulfill, it becomes an idol. Our lives begin to unravel. Uh, how many of you know somebody else, <laughs> show of hands, where they've put work uh, ahead of their family, their relationships? Anybody know that? Some of you were like, you know. And we, we know this to be true, that when we do that, when we put our, our work uh, ahead of family, for example, our family begins to unravel. Marriages begin to break down. Kids can begin to have resentment. If we put things being more important than relationships, our relational dynamics can begin to break down. If, if you put being right all the time above being in a relationship with somebody else, things begin to unravel. I was talking with my mom yesterday. She said that somebody uh, she saw uh, on social media 
basically unfriended somebody else and said, well, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. And the other person said, well, wish granted unfriend because they disagreed over what was going on in our country. Some people, we put things above relationship when we have to be right. It's going to unravel our relationships. God wants to go after the idols in your life, even if they're good things. If you think your health or your, your reputation or your work or, or your family or relationships is going to give you what only God can give you, you're basically like Pharaoh saying, well, God, who are you and why should I listen to you? Why should I put these things in this or why should I put you first, God? And why should I put my family next? And why should I put my relationships? And why should I do all these things? God says, it's, a, it's because I'm a judge unlike any other. That's how I designed you. And leads into the second point. God says, I'm a creator unlike any other. You know, I grew up in the 80s. And that means I've got a lot of great imagination uh, from amazing television and film. <laughs> and... If I was God, which I'm thankful and you're thankful that I'm not, if I was going to smite Pharaoh, you know, and kind of prove to him who's boss, I mean, I, I dabble a little bit in like, you know, some Spielberg, you know, and I'd like, you know, Indiana Jones, I, I'd melt their faces off. Or I'd send dragons to devour, Right? There would definitely be lasers, <laughs> and lots of them, right? I would do some pretty out there miraculous things, right? And yet what's fascinating about these 10 plagues is that all of them have to do with creation unraveling. And yet at the same time, this is not just a natural disaster. Let me show you something. Open those Bibles back up. Let's take a look at the very first. The very first plague. Exodus 7. Verse 17. This is after God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. In verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. See, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. The fish in the river shall die, the river itself shall stink, and the Egyptians shall be unable to drink water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over its rivers, its canals, its ponds, and all of its pools of water, so that they may be, become blood. Let's pause right there for a moment. Now, uh, now, some people, some scholars, some historians have said, oh, no, no, this is just a natural disaster. This was a, uh, a red algae super bloom. Well, before you laugh, though, let's, let's think about this for a moment. Reasonable, right? Red algae super bloom that absolutely destroyed the ecosystem, caused all the fish to die. And these same scholars and historians say, and as a result, all the frogs now had to exit the water, which was the second plague. All these frogs everywhere in the dry desert heat with no water that could sustain them, they die. There's a massive stench, which then leads to the third and fourth which is gnats and flies. Naturally, dead frogs everywhere. There's going to be gnats and flies, which then leads to the fifth and sixth, where the livestock are poisoned. There's this great outbreak, an epidemic that affects the livestock and then the people. And so some people have said, this is actually just a natural disaster that is taking its course. No. And yes, at the same time. 
But let me say no first, because, take a look at this. Open those Bibles back up. The second half of verse 19. And there shall be blood throughout the whole land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. There's not one word in Scripture out of place. All of Scripture is God-breathed. And so what God is saying here, through Moses, is that this is not just a natural disaster, because how could a glass of water have a red algae super bloom if it's on your dining room table? It can't happen. This is a supernatural, miraculous event that God is doing to express the fact that he is not only judge, but he is the creator of all, but he uses his creation. And so it's fascinating when you look at every single one of these things. As I said before, it is about creation unraveling. And scholars make an interesting note. Commentators say, and uh, there's a lot of validity to this, that when you look at the ten plagues, what it's doing is it's unraveling the creation account of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Because if you go to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you see God speaking into the darkness, let there be light. And God creates not just light, he creates water, he creates insects, he creates livestock, he creates weather patterns, he creates humanity. And when God is answering Pharaoh's question, who's God that I should listen to him? He's saying that I created all this. And as you were trying to build your empire, Pharaoh, if you do this without me, if you do this without acknowledging me as Lord, things will begin to unravel. Because I alone give life, I alone sustain life. And so the water is undrinkable. The livestock, the people, it goes dark for three days. This is true today in very, very practical ways that we encounter all the time. Here's one of many examples. Let's say you go to the doctor, and the doctor says to you, oh, I, I ran some tests. Here's what you've got to do. If you want to live, if you want to thrive, if you want to make it to your you know, 80th birthday, you've got to cut out cholesterol. Now, I don't imagine any of you would say, who do you think you are, doc, trying to control my life? Are you on some sort of power trip? Has any, have you ever done that before? Any doctors done that before? Had that said to them? No, we would never do that to a doctor. But we do it to God every day. Who do you think you are, God? Are you trying to control me? Is this some sort of power trip? Now, when we listen to the doctor who is diagnosed with something, uh, we believe them because we believe that they want what's best for us. Uh, they know how uh, we're wired, and that if we live in a certain way, if we change certain things, then we're more likely to thrive. It's the same with God. But he's not just diagnosing you like a doctor would. He designed you. He knows your physical body better than any doctor. He knows what it would take for relational health and psychological health and physiological health and spiritual health. And when he says, this is how I want you to live, it's so that you would thrive. But in the same way, if you don't listen to a doctor and your body begins to unravel more and more, when you are disobedient to God, your life begins to unravel. Let me give you one such example. When God says, ready for this? 
forgive your enemies? And we say no. And what happens last week happens. And what's going to happen this week happens. And what happens the next month and on and on and on. And when we are unable to forgive, we begin to unravel. We lose it. And our relationships suffer. Our mind suffers. Our emotions suffer. And we actually become paralyzed and we can't do the very thing that God also commands us, which is to be a voice for the voiceless, to speak out against injustice, to confront the power structures, to be part of the revival and renewal of all things, to be an ambassador for Christ, to care for the oppressed, to push back against it. God wants us to do those things, but we get immobilized when we're unable to just follow this life that he has for us. We're just like Pharaoh in so many ways. And what's so great is that the sermon's not going to end here. There's not two points, there's three. God isn't just judge and creator, he's also savior. Because if I just ended here, you might walk away what actually every other major world religion tells you, which is measure up. Do this, don't do that. Here's what you're supposed to do to get this, to have this, to be free from this. This is what you're supposed to do. That's not at all the message of Scripture. In fact, the same message of Scripture is true from beginning to end. Take a look. Open those Bibles back up. Exodus 9. I mean, if I was God, I would not do it this way, but... Praise the Lord, right? (laughs) Exodus 9. Verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues upon you yourself. This is God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. For this time I will send all my plagues upon you yourself and upon your officials and upon your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hands and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But this is why I have let you live, to show you my power and to make my name resound through all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Now pause there. You know what God is saying to Pharaoh? I'm a God of grace. Yes, I'm a God of justice. You deserve to die. And I've created you. I could take it away. But I'm a God of grace. And it is my plan, it is my purpose to allow these things to happen so that ultimately God's people, the nation of Israel, would be set free so that I could be, God says, true to my word, true to my covenant, that through God's people, the nation of Israel, an offspring, a seed, would rise up that would be a blessing to all the nations, that through Israel, a Messiah would be born. And that that Messiah would give hope to all the nations. Because that Messiah is a judge in the flesh, is a creator in the flesh, is a savior in the flesh. 
That's what Scripture says about Jesus. That he knows hearts that only God could. That John 1 and Colossians 1 say that all things were created by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. He's the creator. And isn't it amazing that when Jesus, after he lived the perfect life without sin, he goes to the cross, the judge, the jury, the executioner becomes the judged. And on the cross, Jesus says, judge me. But don't just judge me for my perfect life. Judge me for Drew's brokenness. Judge me for your brokenness. Fill in your name. Because what Jesus does on the cross is he takes all of your brokenness, all the things that you wish you've done and you haven't done it yet, all the things that you wish you would never do but you did it anyway. He takes all of that upon himself and he says, judge me. And God does. And he pours out times infinity, acts of judgment that the plagues were just a drop in the ocean compared to, and he pours it out on Christ, not you, not you. What he says to Pharaoh, he says to you, I could have killed you, but I saved you. You know, Scripture says that it's God's desire that not one person would perish. And yet he gives us the choice. We either choose him or we don't. He says, let my people go. Let my people go. And eventually, God's people were freed. Free from bondage in Egypt. And what's so amazing, what Jesus does on the cross, and there's no coincidence that it goes dark when Jesus is on the cross from noon to three. Just like the ninth plague. Just like pre-creation chaos. Uh, it's no coincidence that when Jesus is on the cross that there is a violent earthquake. You see, creation is being undone. And yet God is more powerful. Because Jesus rises from the grave. He defeats death. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to make you a new creation. You see, Jesus is the true Moses. In the same way that God used Moses to free the Egyptians from the slavery in Egypt, God uses Jesus to set us free from our bondage to sin. And he says to you and he says to me, let my people go. But you have a choice, just like Pharaoh. You either say, who's God that I should listen, that I should obey him? You will stay enslaved. Enslaved to your bitterness Enslaved to your unforgiveness, enslaved to your hate, enslaved to your need to be in control, enslaved to, you fill in the blank, you'll stay enslaved. And yet because you have a choice, you don't have to be like Pharaoh. You can say, oh God, you're God, I'm not. You're a judge unlike any other. You're a creator unlike any other. You're, you're a savior unlike any other. The judge sat down and got cross-examined. 
Jesus took my penalty? And in doing so, Jesus gave me his perfect record? That's grace. It's the gospel right in the middle of the Exodus story. I've got a little bit of Moses, a little bit of Aaron, a little bit of Israel, a little bit of the Egyptians, a little bit of Pharaoh in me. And I get to choose every day whose voice is going to be the loudest in my life. Is it the negative tapes in my head? Is it my fear? Is it my need to please people? Is it this news pundit? Is it this? Is it that? Or is it God himself? Who says, this is, this is who you are. This is who I am, God says. So God is saying to you, just like he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. How will you respond? Let's pray. God, I pray that every single person would be unsatisfied unsatisfied with the things that they think would give them joy but really haven't so far, that they would be unsatisfied with things that they think would give them meaning and security and significance, that they would come toe-to-toe with just the reality, just the plain fact that certain things don't give them what their hearts long for. And so, God, of all the idols, even the good things that we put out of order in our lives, God, would we, as St. Augustine said, would our hearts be restless until we find our rest in you? God, we thank you that you're a God that meets us right where we are. God, would you set us free to be your people, that we would be on the front lines of giving hope to this world, that as your church, that we would be known not for being on one side of the aisle or not, or fighting against one another like the rest of the world, but God, we would be your people that would be sent out for your purposes, that we would be a light to the nations, that there would be ambassadors for you, Jesus, that we would speak truth and love, that our good deeds would cause other people to praise you, our Father in heaven. So God, give us a humility. We'll never be the judge like you are. We don't know people's hearts. We don't even understand our own. May we rest in you. And may that enable us to live with courage, with strength, speaking truth and love, being for justice, for goodness, for mercy, for grace, for righteousness in this world because it's an undeserved gift that you've given us. God, we love you. Give us opportunities to follow you, not only today, but every day, and everywhere with everyone. It's in your mighty and matchless name I pray. In Jesus, amen.